this week. Quick question. Do we have any avid gardeners here? Show of hands. Come on. Genuinely avid gardeners? Weirdos. All right. So here's the thing I've never really understood is gardening for the sake of gardening. I mean, why put all that work into something that doesn't do anything? It's like horses. Why has anyone ever ridden one since cars were invented? I'll never understand it, right? So, like, things that are just pointless. Um, So, there is one sort of gardening, though, that I understand, and that is fruit trees. Because they produce something. And so I get out there avidly pruning, watering, fertilizing, covering in a net, doing whatever I have to do to look after those trees because I feel like there's a purpose and a point to it. And I'll tell you how far I go on this. A few years ago, our youngest daughter, Elkie, uh, ate an avocado and then took the seed and did some skewering thing or whatever and it grew roots and then she planted it uh, in a pot in our yard Uh, And eventually, from that seed, managed to grow this beautiful, small avocado tree, uh, which didn't produce fruit. So I pulled it out of the pot and threw it on the ground where it withered and died. Because it's a useless tree, right? It's supposed to make avocados, and it doesn't. Uh, And if it can't make avocados, then, you know, just like gluten-free bread, turn it into a box or something. It's useless. Um... For, for, for its intended purpose. So, now why do I start like this? Because in our passage, Jesus is moving into talking about plants that produce fruit versus plants that don't. And this is a challenging passage, and I think this upper room discourse, as it's called, This is how Jesus has been progressing throughout our passages, if you've noticed. He's preparing the disciples for his departure, and as he do so, he's consistently mixing two things together. He offers words of comfort, I will be with you, I love you, I do not call you orphans, I'm preparing a place for you, with challenges of obeying my commands, serving me, sharing the gospel. So he's Comfort is a mixture of challenging the disciples to serve him and the comfort of Christ being with us. We see that a lot. He's talked about the presence and the coming of the Spirit. And Phil looked at this last week, that the Spirit comes and brings an internal peace, a steadfast peace that comes from knowing God that is not shaken by the troubles of the world, a peace that can come from Christ only. So he tells them that you have this peace, church, but with that peace, that's meant to provide you peace in trouble, and as you go out on the mission of Christ to serve him, you will retain his peace. See, this is the tension that Jesus keeps weaving through this passage. I will care for you, I will comfort you, I will give you peace. But that peace is not given to you to live a life of comfort and ease. It's a peace that's given to you that will guarantee peace in the midst of trial and trouble. Right? That's what Jesus is getting across to us. 
one of the reasons, as I was just sort of saying, that we have trouble, one of the reasons of Christians that our lives aren't always easy, is that we are called to a purpose. There are things as a Christian for you to do. We are not saved by works, but we are saved to work good works that are prepared in advance for us to do. In my mind, I imagine this discourse as you give a, the comfort you give a child heading off to their first day of school. Every parent here kind of remember that moment. Everyone would be too scared to show hands now anyway after calling you weirdos. But anyway, um, you know that first day of school where your kid's kind of clinging to you and you tell them how much you love them and you you've packed them a beautiful lunch and you might have slipped a note in the lunch to remind them again of how much you love them. Uh, but the reality is you have to shove them through that gate and they have to go and learn. They're there to hear from the teacher. And as they do that, there's the heartaches that come with it. As a parent, you start to get those, those you know, stories of mum and dad, the kids, other kids don't like me or someone was picking on me today. Um, but they're there for a purpose and the trial comes along the way, but the one promise you always give them is, I'll be here to pick you up. When that bell goes, I'm here. Right? That's the comfort you give them. And that's what Jesus is kind of saying. He's got, there's a purpose, there's a direction, there's things you have to achieve, but, but I'm here to pick you up. Right? I'm, I'm here for you. And so we've got that tension that's coming through from Christ that he's with us, but we're going to have to fight the fights. We're going to have to have the battles. That's going to be your, your journey. But he guarantees us peace in the midst of the trial. So that brings us to our passage. So we're up to John chapter 15, and we're going to read verses 1 to 8 if you have your Bible with you. John 15, 1 to 8. We will be going through to 17, so we'll look at it in two different halves. John 15, 1 to 8. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit, so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine... Neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Amen, the Word of God. So what really helps us understand the strength of this passage is just knowing a little bit, a bit about the Old Testament background. The vine, most commonly in the Bible, right throughout the Old Testament, refers to Israel, God's chosen people. I'll give you an example of what this like. So right throughout the Old Testament, Israel is called the vine. 
But in every one of the references of Israel being called the vine throughout the Old Testament, it refers to Israel being the vine and the fact that the vine is not producing fruit. So all the Old Testament references, Israel is the vine and the vine is failing to produce fruit. I'll give you an example. This is Psalm 80 and I'll just read 8 to 11. Psalm 80, 8 to 11. You... This is referring to God. You dug up a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared a place for it. It took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered by its shade and the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out sprouts toward the sea and shoots toward the river. Right? So God, God plucked the vine out of Egypt and he planted it in the promised land, and it looked good for a while. They spread, and they grew, and they conquered, is what our passage is describing for us. But if we go on in Psalm 80, this is 15 to 17, the root your right hand planted, the sun that you made strong for yourself, it was cut down and burned. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be with the man at your right hand, with the son of man you have made strong for yourself. Right? You burn because it didn't produce fruit. This is the consistent message of Israel the vine. They don't produce the fruit that the vine should produce. And so we have either threats of punishment or record of punishment itself of being Burned. And so that is consistent throughout the Old Testament. Lest anyone sits here and thinks, you know what? They stuffed up a lot of times, those guys in the Old Testament, didn't they? Remember when we went through our Old Testament overview series? And how often is God like, how long do I put up with you, you rebellious nation? And how often do they do the wrong thing? Anyone here feel like they would have done so much better? Aren't we tempted in the same way? Oh, Lord, if you'd planted me as the vine, oh, then it would have been incredible fruit, right? No. No, that's not the answer, is it? Our hope is not that Israel could become a better vine. Our hope is not that we can be the better vine. Now, our only hope is that Jesus is the vine, right? That's the point of this whole passage. Even back there in Psalm 80, you might have noticed it was cut down and burned, and then it says, it, let your hand be with the man at your right hand, with the Son of Man, right? The Son of Man, the reference to the Messiah. Let your hand, let your vine, let the one who produces fruit be the Son of Man, back there in Psalm 80. And then Jesus starts our passage with what? I am the vine. Right? So all of the failure of the vine to produce fruit in the Old Testament was all pointing to the fact that we're the vine. No, it was all pointing to the fact that Jesus is the only true vine, that Jesus is the one who produces all the fruit that God requires. Amen? Right? It's all about Jesus. And that's what we see from the Old Testament till now. Jesus is 
the vine, and only the vine can produce the fruit. Right? That's the point of our passage. All the Old Testament points to Jesus. But, says our passage, he produces fruit and grows it on the tendrils or on the branches. In other words, this is another way of saying that we are saved to good works. We are saved to be fruit-bearing. God has a harvest that he intends to reap through his branches. Right? That's what the word is saying. The vine produces fruit and produces it on the branches. God has a harvest he intends to reap through you. And so he tells us a couple of things about how he's going to do that. He says the father is the gardener. And he's committed to doing two things to making a healthy tree. Firstly, he inspects the tree... And wherever he sees a dead branch, he cuts it off. He removes it from the tree. How do you know that it's a dead branch? Well, it produces no fruit. Right? So the father inspects the tree. Wherever there's no fruit, he cuts it off. This is meant to be a stark warning to people. If your life looks Christian... If you attend church, if you go to a home group, if you tithe, if you make excuses why you can't tithe, whatever it might be, you can do all the motions of faith, but motions of faith are not the fruit that God requires of us. You can go through the motions of faith and be a dead branch. And this is the point of the passage. The dead branch is actually mixed among the healthy ones. And our passage says the father inspects the tree, finds the dead branches, and cuts them off. So what's the fruit in the context that the father is looking for? Well, in the context of our passage... It's everything required of following Jesus. That has been the context of the upper room discourse. Obedience to Jesus' commands. Experience of Jesus' joy and his peace. Love for one another in the church. Our sharing of our faith with the world. The fruit of being connected to Christ is persevering with dependence on Christ, driven by faith and embracing the requirements of the life that God asks of us. Love for one another is more than something we sing about. It's love in action, according to our passage. The love of Christ seen in your care for your brothers and your sisters and in your love for your neighbour. Can I genuinely, seriously get you to pause for a second and just ask yourself, am I producing fruit? Not asking anyone else. Just ask yourself, do I produce fruit for the kingdom of God? 
Not do I attend church. Do I produce fruit? If the answer is no, then the Father will find you, cut you off, and cast you in the fire. Unless you repent. Unless you acknowledge, Lord, I've been pretending, I've been attending church because my parents and grandparents did. Lord, I've been going through the motions because I think it looks good. I come because my boss comes, whatever it might be. Lord, I am wrong and I repent and I put my faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus paid the penalty of my sin. I accept that he died for me and I put my faith in the promise of his resurrection that I'll be resurrected with him. Lord, I surrender my life and I give it to you. And when we're born again, truly of the grace and of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then he begins to produce the fruit in you and you will be saved. Amen? Not on the basis of your works, but on the basis of your true repentance. And then he begins to produce fruit. So if your answer is no, I don't, I know I'm going through the motions, please don't stay there. Repent and put your faith in Christ. Now, if your answer is yes, I am producing fruit. Well, Whether you are producing a huge amount of fruit or just a little, you are saved by grace, you are saved, praise God. But our text promises us that the Father, as an active gardener, is going to prune you to produce even more fruit. Now this is the same basic principle of Hebrews 12, the promise of the Father's corrective discipline. There is no discipline that seems pleasant at the time, but painful later on. However, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Same thing, right? It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. In other words, I think of the Proverbs, spare the rod, spoil the child. The father says, hey church who's producing fruit, you're going to get the rod from me occasionally to produce more fruit a promise of God that He is going to discipline you sometimes and that's going to be tough. But He will use the trials to shape and mould your character more into the image of Christ that you can produce more fruit. He does this in lots of different ways, doesn't He? The discipline of the Father tough times that we go through in life, illness can, illness can bring us to our knees. We're just crying out to God, but He uses that illness to, to shape our character. could be poverty at times when we, you know, we lost that business during the COVID pandemic and, and we watched the money evaporating and you just you felt like you wanted to cling to it, but it was just disappearing at a rate that you couldn't do anything about and you cried out to God and it felt like He didn't answer. And all the while He was saying, cling to me. Let me mold where you place your hope and your trust. 
Maybe it's that person in this church that you're praying God will just rapture right there in the spot and take them away, right? So you're just like, you know, that person so gets under my skin, Lord. Um, they've got to be the problem, can't be me, um, right? We, we all go into that place sometimes. And God's saying, I put that person there to mold you, that you would learn grace, that you would learn forgiveness, that you would learn to love the way that Christ loves someone as fallen as us, right? God disciplines us and he challenges us and he shapes and molds us into his likeness that we would produce more fruit for the glory of God. That's, that's why he's doing it. Look for the hand of God in the difficulties that we face. In verse 5 and 6, Jesus repeats the same idea but a little more forcefully. If you remain in Jesus and stay connected to the vine, you will produce fruit. If you do not, you will wither and die and be thrown into the fire and burned. Straightforward. You produce fruit because you're born again and God is working in you. And if you don't produce fruit, you are not born again and your consequence is hell. In that context, Jesus says, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. And of course, he means as you are connected to the vine, as you are serving the vine, as you're going about the good works prepared in advance for you to do, as you ask God to equip you in the ministry of glorifying Christ, then he will do those things in your life. That is the context of that passage. When you do those things, God will produce fruit in you the result will be his glory, right? That's what we're aiming for. The second part of our passage is similar, but it changes a little bit. Let's get there. This is John 15, 9 to 17. John 15, 9 to 17. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you, my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore. Because the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything I've heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you. Love one another. All right, so like I said, Jesus continues the same theme here, but he changes it slightly. The first one is for the farmers and gardeners in the room, and the second one is for the romantics, okay? So we've just shifted gear here slightly. Jesus has told us that we must remain in the vine, that Jesus is the vine, and in us he will produce fruit. And now he says we must remain in his love. Right? Similar idea, but he's just shifting tack slightly to say we must remain in his love. 
And he grounds that love in the relationship between the Father and the Son. As Jesus perfectly loves the Father, and the Father perfectly loves the Son, we are to love Christ, and that looks like obedience. Now, we will not and cannot love perfectly. However, if you meet someone who claims the name of Christian, but doesn't try to obey him, who twists the scriptures to suit their own sinful desires, that person does not love Jesus. They love their sin and they mold Jesus into its image. Right? It's not meant to be that way. We love Christ and the love of Christ results in obedience. If we love and obey Christ, Jesus has been telling us some results of that obedience. He told us back in 1427 that we would have his peace. And now he tells us that if we love him and obey him, we will have his joy. There is joy in obeying the one you love and receiving their approval, isn't there? If you deeply love someone and they ask you to do something and you do it and they say thank you, doesn't that feel good? Right? There is joy in obeying someone you love. And Christ says, when you love me and obey me, you will know his joy. Because what's the basis of Christ's joy? His obedience to the Father. And Christ says, as I've experienced the joy of the Father's approval, when you love and obey me, you will know the joy of Christ's approval. If you want to know what a disobedient Christian looks like, it's the Christian who is not at peace and does not have joy. They've traded in peace and joy for the pleasures of the world. And that leaves you with guilt, shame, and bitterness. Right? The Christian who is traded in obedience for the pleasures of the world is left with guilt, shame, and bitterness. Not the peace and joy which are the fruit of obedience. At times the Father disciplines us and we go through tough times despite not doing anything overtly wrong that we know about. But there's joy in those moments often. Maybe at work I'm copping flack because I'm a Christian. And we're trying to honour Christ. So despite the fact times are getting tough, there's joy in it, isn't there? I'm doing my best to serve Christ and I'm copping flack for that, but who cares because Jesus is first. I might be losing my job, I might be losing a promotion, my business might be going down because of my Christian ethics, but have joy. There is no joy if I've traded in obedience for a boyfriend or girlfriend who doesn't honor Christ or materialism or there's no joy in that. There's joy and peace through obedience. Just like in the great commandment, Jesus can summarize obeying by saying, love God and love one another as I have loved you. Greatest love is laying down your life for a friend. 
And this is the love of Christ, and we are called in this passage to show that for one another. Within the church, brothers and sisters, lay down your life, love one another. Right? Is what Christ is saying. He says, we are not servants because he has told us everything the Father told him. I mean, we know something of the Father. We know something of his plan for the world. We see some of the dialogue between the Father and the Son. In short, we have a close relationship with God because of Christ and because of the Word of God, which means Jesus calls us his friends. Right? So we're close to God. He's brought us into the family of God. And as people who love him and have been brought into the family, he expects that we will obey him. Now in this wonderful little passage, he says, I've welcomed you, I call you my friends, I've taught you all of these good things, I've given you my peace, I've given you my joy. Oh, and it'd be easy, wouldn't it, to sit there and get a bit of a big head? Oh, Jesus loves me. Jesus has given me all of these things. It must be because I'm pretty good. It must be because I'm fairly on top of things. And then just to kind of change tack, Jesus says, by the way, you did not choose me. I chose you from before the foundation of the world. It's not because of you. It's not because of anything you've done. It's not because of any choice you were going to make. I chose you according to my good pleasure for my glory and for my will, right? It's about me. So Christ just straight away brings it back to him, the vine. You are chosen by Christ. And he says, appointed by God to bear good fruit. Christ chose you to bear fruit for his glory. Right? That was the purpose. He's, he's chosen you to do good works, to do things for him that result in his glory. And what's the overall fruit that we have been chosen to that just resounds again and again and again in this passage, right? And he says, I've appointed you to bear fruit. What is it in the context of this passage? It is to go and make disciples. It's the mission of God that we proclaim the good news, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then we see people come to faith who will love and obey Christ and will proclaim the good news, and as they do so, other people will come to faith who will love Christ and obey his commands and who will proclaim the good news. Let me tell you something really that I just love at baptisms. When we had these three up here this morning, Emily, Bethany, and Cohen, do you know why they're there this morning? because of what Christ said here 2,000 years ago. Christ said to his disciples, you are to express your love for me by obeying my commands and telling people the good news will result in my glory. And guess what they did? They told people the good news. And guess what those people did? They told people the good news. And guess what those people did? Come on, we should be getting there by now. Do you know, this is a fact. We started with 12 disciples. And from that point, we've come to these three today. Right? From that point, 
They were standing here this morning as a direct line from this conversation. Because year after year after year after year after year, God has chosen people to bear fruit who have been faithful to that call, who have told people the good news, and so on and so forth. That message has resounded around the world until it reaches Bundaberg and it reaches right here this morning. Because Christ appointed his people to bear fruit. And that's what's been going on for 2,000 years. Because if we love Christ, we proclaim the message. Right? That is what's going on this morning. And I hope, Cohen, Emily and Bethany, I hope you realize that, that you are a link in the chain of fruit-producing branches that goes right back to this moment. In short, love Jesus. Love one another. Share the good news, and Christ will give you peace, joy, and the assurance that the Father will support you as you speak of the glory of the Son. That's how you become a fruity Christian, right? That's our goal. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for its comfort. Lord, that you love us with the same love that exists between you and the Father. Lord, you gave up your life for us. Lord, but it's not a love that's a love that leaves us just sitting in, in comfort and, and, a, and a love that just takes away our striving, Lord. It's a love that encourages us to march forward, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a love that gives us comfort in the midst of the battle of declaring Jesus to a world that often doesn't want to hear him. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us and inspire us and equip us and fill us with the knowledge of that love, that peace and that joy that we would boldly tell people. There is a way of salvation. His name is Jesus. Lord, we ask that in and through your name. Amen. All right, that brings our service to a close this morning. We don't have a final song. There is coffee over on next door. We do have had free coffee cards going around, but if you're a visitor here with us this morning and we don't have one to give you, that's fine. Just tell them you're new and they'll give you a free coffee. Um, and we just encourage you guys to stick around and get to know one another. So thanks, everybody. <laughs>